You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. Today I want to take a little different tact than what we've been doing the last few weeks and talking about unlocking the secrets of health insurance affordability. Because of the renewed thrust, the increase in the coronavirus uh, cases that are happening, I wanted to back up and talk about coronavirus. I know we did that a month or so ago, but I think it's important today as we are talking nationally about going back to school, the potential for uh, viruses uh, being solved with vaccines, with the virus being uh, mitigated with therapeutics. There's all sorts of things going on today. Socially, we're talking about and debating about going back to school. Some states are thinking about closing down various parts of their economy again. We've got an election coming up, and some of this has been politicized. Uh, and so it's hard to know what the truth is in many cases. Experts seem to have different opinions What I want to do today is bring a different point of view in that some might even think is controversial, but at least it's another point of view worth listening to. And there was a TED Talk recently with um, uh, Bill Gates. Now, Bill's a smart guy. He's got a foundation that's doing a lot of things around healthcare uh, nationally and internationally. And I think some of his words at least are worth hearing And if you haven't had a chance to listen to them on TED Talks, I wanted to take and sort of slice and dice some of those comments a little bit so that we could hear it today and reach uh, maybe an audience that hasn't been listening to TED TED Talks. So I want to give full credit to TED Talks, and you can go online and listen to the direct TED Talks uh, question and answers. But I wanted to sort of intersperse um, uh, questions that I have with some of his responses and uh, let's see how that goes today. So if you'll hang with me, I just want to have us all listen to uh, some of the things that Bill Gates is talking about, and I'll try to provide some commentary about it as well. So with sort of our um, virtual guest being uh, Bill Gates today, the first question that I really would like to know about and hear from him on is, what do you think of the projections uh, going forward into the fall What's sort of your, if you will, worldview of the coronavirus um, issues that are going on? Give us your perspective of what you and your foundation are thinking about in terms of where this virus is going over the rest of this year. Well, the range of scenarios, sadly, is is quite large, including that uh, as we get into the fall, we could have death rates uh, that rival uh, the worst of what we had in the April time period. And if you get a lot of young people infected, eventually they will infect old people again. And so you'll get into the nursing homes, the homeless shelters, the places where uh, we've had a lot of our deaths. The innovation track, which you know probably will touch on diagnostics, therapeutics, vaccines, there's good progress there, but nothing that would fundamentally alter the fact that this fall in the United States could be quite bad. And that's worse than I would have expected uh, a month ago. The degree to which we're back at high mobility, not wearing masks, and now 
the virus actually has has gotten into a lot of cities that it hadn't been in uh, before in a significant way. Uh, so it's it's going to be a challenge. You know, there's no case where we get much below the current death rate, which is about 500 deaths a day. But there's a significant risk we'd go back up to the uh, even 2,000 a day uh, that we had before because we don't have the distancing, uh, the behavior change to the degree that uh, we had uh, in April and May. And we know this virus is somewhat seasonal so that the force of infection, both through temperature, humidity, more time indoors, will be worse as we get into the fall. Bill, we are now in the summer months, and many expected the hotter temperatures and the humidity to help defeat this COVID virus. What are the experts now saying about weather and temperature, and what's happening in other parts of the globe where the seasons are the opposite of ours? They're not absolutely sure, but certainly the um, HME model definitely wanted to use the season, uh, including temperature and humidity, to try and explain why May wasn't worse than it was. Uh, And so as we came out and the mobility numbers uh, got higher, the models expected more uh, infections and deaths to come out of that. And the model kept wanting to say, but I I need to use this uh, seasonality to match why May wasn't worse, why June uh, wasn't worse than it was. And, you know, so it's, and we see in the Southern Hemisphere, uh, you know, Brazil, uh, which is the opposite season, now all of South America is having a a huge epidemic. South Africa is having a very fast-growing epidemic. Uh, Fortunately, Australia and New Zealand, the last countries in the Southern Hemisphere, are at really tiny case counts. And so although they, they have to keep knocking it down, you know, they're talking about, oh, we have 10 cases, that's a big deal, let's go uh, get rid of that. So they're, in, they're one of these amazing countries that got the number so low that test, quarantine, uh, and trace is working to get them, keep them at very near zero. You mentioned contact tracing What's the real value of contact tracing? And is it a very easy thing to do? It, you know, in contact tracing, if you have the number of cases we have in the U.S., it, it's super important to do, but it won't get you back down to zero. It'll, it'll help you be down, but uh, it's over, too overwhelming. It'll help our audience understand a little bit. We have some states that are dramatically down, and others that um, there's actually an alarming uptick in the cases. What's going on around the country, and how do you see the dynamic of the continuing spread of the virus? That's right. It's it's in, say, the New York area, uh, the cases continue to go down somewhat. But in other parts of the country, primarily the, the south uh, right now, uh, you have increases that are offsetting that, and you have testing positive rates in young people that are actually higher than what we saw even in uh, some of the tougher areas. And so clearly younger people have come out of mobility 
more than older people uh, have increased their mobility. So the age structure is right now very young, but because of multi-generational households, people who work in nursing care homes, unfortunately, that will work its way back, both the time leg and the transmission back up into the elderly will start to push the death rate back up, which is down, uh, you know, way down from 2000 to, you know, around 500 right now. So cases are up, but mortality is still down dramatically from where we were a few months ago. Are we doing better at treating patients? And what are some of the items you see out there as the therapeutics as they're developing and whether they're really being efficient or not? And are the hospitals doing a much better job than they might have been doing when they were overwhelmed with patients? Yeah, certainly your fatality rate is always lower when you're not overloaded. And so Italy, when they were overloaded, Spain, even New York at the start, uh, certainly China, uh, there you weren't even able to provide the the basics, uh, the oxygen uh, and things. A study that our foundation funded in the UK uh, has found the only thing other than remdesivir uh, that is a proven therapeutic, uh, which is the dexamethasone, that uh, for serious patients is about a 20% uh, death reduction. And there's still quite a pipeline of those things. Uh, you know, hydroxychloric can never establish positive data, so that's pretty much uh, done. There's still a few trials uh, ongoing. But the list of things being tried, including uh, eventually the monoclonal antibodies, we will have some additional tools for the fall. And so you always have, when you talk about death rates, the good news is some innovation we already have, and we'll have more even uh, in the fall. We we should start to have monoclonal antibodies, which is the therapeutic, the single therapeutic that I'm most excited about. Bill, the media keeps focusing on the number of cases, and they're going up dramatically. Some argue because we're doing so much more testing. But once we know much better about how widespread this disease is across the country, and we know how many people are affected, both symptomatic and asymptomatic, isn't the death rate really low compared to what might have been? If you found every case, yes, you're you're well below 1%. People argue, you know, 0. 0.4, 0. 0.5. Uh, you know, by the time you bring in the never symptomatics, it probably is below 0. 0.5. And, you know, that's good news. This, this disease could have been a 5% disease. Uh, the transmission dynamics of this disease are more difficult than even the experts predicted. Uh, the amount of pre-symptomatic and never-symptomatic spread and the fact that it's not coughing, where you would kind of notice, hey, I'm coughing. Most respiratory diseases make you cough. This one, in its early stages, it's not coughing. It's uh, singing, laughing, talking, actually still, particularly for the super spreaders, people with very high viral loads, causes that spread. And and that's pretty novel. Uh, and so even the experts have to say, wow, this caught us 
by surprise. The amount of asymptomatic spread and the fact that there's not a coughing element is not a major piece like the flu or TB. Well, give our audience some insight as to the transmission from non-symptomatic to pre-symptomatic to asymptomatic to people with serious illnesses. Is there a difference in how complicated or how serious the transmission is, the type of virus that we get based upon the level of sickness that the people might have, the level of the virus that people might have who are doing the transmitting? Yeah, if you count pre-symptomatics, then most of the studies show that's like at 40%. Uh, and, you know, and we also have never symptomatics. The amount of virus you get in your upper respiratory area is somewhat disconnected. Some people will have a lot here and very little in their lungs. And what you get in your lungs causes the really bad symptoms uh, and other organs, but mostly the lungs. Uh, and so that's when you seek treatment. And so the worst case in terms of spreading is somebody who's got a lot in the upper respiratory tract, but almost none in their lungs, so they're not uh, care-seeking. This is great information for our audience, uh, a different insight uh, for somebody who's been involved with the development of cures, of thinking about how this stuff is ultimately manufactured and distributed around the world. So let's take a quick break, and we're going to come right back with this interview with Bill Gates. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. You're listening to Healthcare Insight. This is Ron Bachman. And today we're listening to an interview with Bill Gates. Uh, We've asked a few specific questions from uh, my side. I want to do some analysis of his answers but most of this you can actually see on uh, TED Talks. But let's continue with our questioning of uh, Bill Gates. Bill, this uh, virus seems to be an unusually effective transmitter of disease, of the virus itself. Give us a little bit of insight as to your thoughts about the transmission effectiveness of this disease. Yeah, transmission is harder to measure. You know, we see certain hotspots and things. Uh, but that's a huge question with the vaccine. Will it, not, Will it? besides not avoiding you getting sick, which is what the trial will test, will it also stop you from being a transmitter? Now, what about what some would call super transmitters? What about airplanes and crowds that are gathering, um, church groups? Give us some of your insight on the transmission potential of different gatherings and uh, how significant it might be if people are participating in a number of different types of activities. We're still not able to characterize who the super spreaders are in terms of what that profile is. And we may never, that may just be quite random. If you could identify them, uh, they're responsible for the majority of transmission. A few people who have very high viral loads uh, but sadly, we haven't uh, figured that out. Uh, this mode of transmission, if you're in a room and nobody talks, there's way less transmission. Uh, that's partly why, although planes can transmit, it's less than you would expect just in terms of time proximity measures. Because unlike, say, a choir or a restaurant, you're not 
uh, exhaling in in loud uh, talking quite as much as in other indoor environments. Following up on that quickly, what about uh, people going on plane without masks? If, it, if they own the plane, that would be fine. Uh, if there's other people on the plane, that would be endangering those other people. We've had very confusing messages over the last six months on masks. At one point, we were told masks could actually be harmful, so we shouldn't wear them. Uh, then we were told, well, they might be helpful, but we need to save the limited supply we have for the first-line healthcare workers. And now we're told we need to wear a mask. And now we're told that we need to be covering our eyes as well. So you can understand there's a lot of confusion. Did we make a mistake early on by not really telling people what they needed to know? Or maybe it was just we didn't know enough then uh, to give proper advice. And we're just adjusting as we go along here to the best evidence and information that's available. Yes. Uh, all the experts feel bad that... Uh, the value of masks, which ties back somewhat to the asymptomatics. You know, if people were very symptomatic, like an Ebola, uh, then you you know it and you isolate. And so you don't have a need for a mask-like thing. The value of masks, the fact that the medical masks was different, a different supply chain than the normal masks, the fact you could scale up the normal mask so well, the fact that it, it would stop that uh, pre-symptomatic, never-symptomatic transmission, it's a mistake. Uh, but it's it's not a conspiracy. Uh, it's right. something that uh, we now know more. And even now, our error bars on the benefit of masks are higher than we'd like to admit, but it's a significant benefit. Bill, how do you deal with the trade-offs that we have to make between going to work, shutting down, going to school, keeping people at home. How do you make those decisions? I know you've got some input to the um, uh, executive branch um, committee uh, that's dealing with all this. Well, the question of how you make trade-offs between uh, the benefits, say, of going to school versus the risk of people getting sick because they go to school that's those are very tough questions that you know I don't think any uh, single person can say you know I will tell you how to make all these trade-offs. The understanding of where you have transmission and the fact that young people do get infected and are part of a, uh, the multi-generational transmission chain, you know we should get that out. Bill, I know we're still learning about how we should best deal with the uh, coronavirus. But give us your thoughts on the economy. Did we open up the economy too soon? Uh, did we properly look at uh, the geographies and the issues of opening it up? And what about certain segments of the business community? Uh, should we have been more targeted in how we opened up the business community? And what are your thoughts about opening up schools coming this fall? Uh, if you just look at the health aspect, we have opened up too liberally. Now, opening up in terms of you know mental health and seeking uh, normal health things like uh, vaccines or other care, you know there are benefits 
I think some of our opening up has created more risk than benefit. Uh, you know, opening the bars up as quickly as they did, you know, is that critical for mental health? Maybe not. Uh, so I don't think we've been as tasteful about opening up as I'm sure uh, we, we, as we study it, uh, that we'll, you know, realize there we should have some things we shouldn't have opened up as fast. But then you have something like school. We're even sitting here today, the exact plan, say, for inner city schools for the fall, uh, I wouldn't have a black and white view on the relative trade-offs involved there. Uh, there are huge benefits to have letting those kids uh, go to school. Uh, and, you know, how do, how do you weigh the risk? If you're in a city without much, many cases, I would say, you know, probably the benefit is there. Now, that means that you, you could get surprised. The cases could show up and then you'll, you'd have to change that, which is, is not easy. But I think around the U.S. there'll be places where um, that won't, won't be a good trade-off. Anytime something new happens, there are pros and cons. There are inequities that can occur. There are new exaggerations and exacerbations of some of the problems and issues that we see otherwise. What's some of your quick thoughts on new inequities maybe that have been developed because of the virus? So almost any dimension of inequity, this disease uh, has, has made worse. Job type. Uh, internet connection, you know, uh, ability of your school to do online learning. Uh, you know, white-collar workers, you know, people are embarrassed to admit it. Some of them are more productive and, you know, enjoying the flexibility uh, that the at-home thing has created. And, you know, that feels terrible when you know lots of people are suffering uh, in many ways, including their kids not going to school. You know, it's easy for outsiders in the media to play money morning quarterback. That's kind of easy. But tell us about what the foundation is doing and your work involved in trying to move this forward and maybe some of the innovation tools that you're able to work on and the, the real value of the uh, foundation that you run. There's many people, uh, including the experts, who didn't, there's a lot they didn't understand and, you know, Everybody wishes a week earlier, whatever action they took, they'd taken that a week earlier. Uh, the innovation tools, that's where um, you know, the foundations work on uh, you know, antibodies, vaccines. You know, that's, we have deep expertise, and it's outside of a, a private sector. And so we have kind of a neutral ability to work with all the governments and the companies to pick you know, particularly when you're doing break-even products, which one should get the resources? There's no market signal for that. Bill, if there's no market signal about where to go in which um, vaccine to develop, how do we figure out the best way to go and uh, which is going to wind up being the winner and which ones really aren't going to be effective? How do you make those decisions? It's a... a Experts have to say, okay, this antibody deserves the manufacturing. This vaccine deserves the manufacturing. Because uh, we have uh, very limited manufacturing for both of those things. And it'll be cross-company, which never happens in the normal case, where one company invents it, and then you're using the 
manufacturing plants of many companies to get maximum scale of the best choice. So, I, you know, I would be coordinating those things. But, you know, it's a, you know we need a leader who, who keeps us up to date, is realistic, and uh, shows us the, the right behavior as well as driving the innovation track. Bill, let me ask you about Dr. Fauci. He's clearly become the voice on the um, coronavirus. His expertise is in the vaccines and coming from uh, his research and reputation built on HIV. Um, What's your thinking about, has he been given enough voice as uh, you work with the uh, White House task force? Um, give me an overall assessment, because some people think he's the most wonderful person, most intelligent person in the world on this issue, and others are skeptical because of the conflicting advice that may have been put out earlier on. Um, I know you want to be diplomatic about it, but give us some of your thoughts on um, on Dr. Fauci. Dr. Fauci's emerged where he was allowed to have some airtime, uh, and even though you know he staying things that are realistic his prestigious stuff he he could speak out in that way typically the cdc would be the primary voice here uh you know it's not absolutely necessary but in previous health crises you let the experts inside the cdc be that voice they're trained to do these things and so it is a bit unusual here how much we've had to rely on Fauci as opposed to the CDC. It should be Fauci, who's a brilliant researcher, you know, so experienced, particularly in vaccines. Uh, in some ways, he's become taking the broad advice uh, that's the epidemiology advice uh, and explaining it in the right way, where he'll admit, okay, we may have a rebound here, uh, and this is why we need uh, to behave that way. But, you know, it's, it's fantastic that, uh, his voice is, has been allowed to come through. Thank you so much for such great information. I hope you'll, Bill, you'll hang with us a little bit longer. And we've got a lot more questions and a lot more issues we want to try to cover with you uh, during this hour. Uh, but at the moment, as you know, being in business, we need to take a quick uh, commercial break. So if those listening in find this interesting, and I hope you do, we want you to stay with us and come back after this commercial, and we'll continue to talk with uh, Mr. Bill Gates. Everybody knows is one of the wealthiest men in the world, and his wonderful work at the um, uh, Gates Foundation. There's a lot of stuff going on with uh, healthcare and the coronavirus, and we're learning about it from the man at the top. We'll be right back after this commercial. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Want to give your family, our loved one, the perfect gift? Then go online and check out the TornadoBodyDryer.com. I love mine and the warm heat air massage it gives me after my shower. The Tornado Body Dryer is super. You'll love it, and you'll love having one in your shop. 
You can keep your doctor, you can keep your plan, and every family will save thousands of dollars a year. I'm Ellen Deal, and if you've been hurt by the Affordable Care Act, you can email MAGA45CAG at gmail.com to see if we can help. Small business owners, individuals, families, and baby boomers, email MAGA45CAG at gmail.com for three easy questions to determine if you can get away from Obamacare. I'm a 20-year veteran of the insurance industry and here to help you for all your insurance needs. Get your pen and paper ready. If there's a move in your near future, I'm here to tell you that the folks I used and now recommend is Around Town Movers. Timothy and the guys recently moved me, and I am and was totally satisfied with a sometimes not-so-fun experience moving. Call Timothy at 770-378-4708 and make it a good move and a good experience. Around Town Movers for that local or cross-country move. Timothy, Around Town Movers, in my opinion, are the best. That's Around Town Movers. Call them. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. Today we're continuing the discussion in this segment with uh, Mr. Bill Gates of the Gates Foundation and Microsoft. You all know him. He's given us some great insights as to what's going on with the coronavirus research, uh, vaccines, development, and some of his thoughts as he's been working with the uh, White House uh, Committee. So the question I'd like to start this segment with, Bill, is um, what is the state of vaccine development right now from your perspective? There's three vaccines that are, if they work, are the earliest. The Moderna, which unfortunately won't scale uh, very easily. Uh, So if that works, it'll be mostly a U.S. targeted thing. Then you have the AstraZeneca, which comes from Oxford, and the Johnson & Johnson. Those are the three early ones. And we have animal data uh, that it looks potentially good, uh, but not definitive, particularly will it work in the elderly. And we'll have human data over the next several months. Those three will be gated by the safety and efficacy trial. That is, we'll be able to manufacture those, although... Uh, not as much as we want. We'll be able to manufacture those before the end of the year. Whether the phase three will succeed and whether it'll complete before the end of the year, uh, I wouldn't be that optimistic about. Uh, you know, phase three is where you, you need to really look at all the safety profile and, and efficacy, but those will get started. Uh, and then there's, there's four or five vaccines that use different approaches that are maybe three or four months behind that. Novavax, Sanofi, uh, Merck. Um. Once we get a vaccine, how is the foundation working to help fund, say, factories and the manufacturing? And I know your interest in a large part is to the third world uh, countries and the, uh, the low-income countries. How is the foundation working that once we get a vaccine, you might be able to get it out to these other countries uh, expeditiously? And so we're funding... Uh, factory capacity for a lot of these. Uh, some complex negotiations uh, are taking place right now on this uh, to get factories that will be dedicated to the countries, the poor countries. It's called low and middle income. Uh, 
and the very scalable constructs uh, that include AstraZeneca and, and uh, Johnson and Johnson will focus on those, the ones that are inexpensive, and you can build a single factory to make 600 million doses. So uh, a number of the vaccine constructs are potential. You know, I I don't see anything before the end of the year. That's really the best case, and and it, it's down to a few constructs now, which uh, you know typically you have have high failure rates. Bill, your foundation is taking an admirable role in trying to assure that some gaps are filled once that vaccine is uh, generated, but being sure that uh, other countries are able to get the vaccine as fast as possible, that we create additional manufacturing capability to be sure that there's enough to go to other countries uh, after it's developed and the uh, original expenses for the production and research is handled by the uh, wealthier countries. So you're filling in a gap. Tell us about that. Well, it's not just us, but yes, we're in the central role there, along with the group we created called CEPI, uh, Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness, and the European leaders uh, agree with this. Now, we have the expertise to look at each of the constructs and say, okay, where is there a factory in the world that has capacity that can build that? Which one should we put the early money into? What should the milestones be where we'll shift the money over to a different one? Because the kind of private sector people who really understand that stuff uh, some of them work for us, and we're a trusted party on these things. We get to coordinate a lot of it, particularly that manufacturing piece. Uh, usually, you'd expect the U.S. to think of this as a global program um, and be involved. So far, uh, no, uh, no activity on that front has taken place. I am talking to people in the Congress and the administration about when the next relief bill comes along, that, you know, maybe 1% of that could go for the tools to help the entire world. And so it's possible, uh, but it's it's unfortunate. And, you know, the, the vacuum here, the world is not that used to, and a lot of people are stepping in, including our foundation, to try and have a strategy, including for the poor countries, who will suffer a a high percentage of the deaths uh, and negative effects, including their health systems being overwhelmed, uh, and most of the deaths will be in developing countries, despite the huge deaths we've seen in Europe and the U.S. Is the United States stepping up to fund the research and to really get things going? Are we really supporting the world in the ultimate development of the vaccine? The U.S. has put more money out to fund the basic research on these vaccines than any country by far. Uh, and that research is not restricted. There's not like some royalty that says, hey, if you take part of money, you have to pay the U.S. a royalty. They do, to the degree they fund research, it's for everybody. To the degree they fund factories, it's just for the U.S. Well, in this day and age, that sounds kind of reasonable. The United States does the... Uh the expenses for the development, and um, as far as manufacturing, other countries can uh, set up manufacturing plants as well. Um, the United States doesn't have to be the manufacturer 
uh, for the world, setting up uh, plants all around. It seems like the um, the production once uh, the virus um, uh, vaccine is established, that other countries would uh, step up and and uh, protect their own population. Um, what's different about this and um, and other crises that we may have faced? The thing that makes this tough is that in every other global health problem, you know, the U.S. totally leads smallpox eradication. The U.S. is totally the leader on uh, polio eradication with, you know, key partners, CDC, WHO, Rotary, uh, UNICEF, our foundation. So the the world and, and HIV, what uh, under President Bush, Bush's leadership, but it was very bipartisan, this thing called PEPFAR, was unbelievable. Uh, you know, that has saved tens of millions of lives. And so it's that the world always expected the U.S. to at least be at the head of the table financially, strategy. Okay, let's, you know, how do you get these factories for the world? Even if it's just to avoid the infection coming back to the U.S. or to have the global economy working, which is good for U.S. jobs, to have demand outside the U.S. And so the world is kind of, you know, there's all this uncertainty about which thing will work, and there's this, okay, who's in charge here? Uh, and, you know, so the worst thing, the withdrawal from WHO, that is a difficulty uh, that hopefully will uh, get remedied at, at some point uh, because we need that coordination through WHO. Well, Bill, you clearly have more faith in the WHO leadership than does our president. Uh, a lot of us who have followed it have grave concerns about the personnel at the top of WHO and their lack of transparency, uh, their cooperation and cover-up, what seems at least like cover-up to the uh, efforts of the Chinese government. So um, I think we'll get back in WHO if, in fact, they uh, change their leadership or their approach. But how about other countries? Since you've been looking across the board, what other countries have been doing some things that have really been helpful and maybe some lessons that we can learn or we can adopt uh, from other countries in handling the uh, epidemic? Well, it's fascinating that uh, besides early action, there are definitely things where you take people have tested positive and you monitor their pulse ox, uh, which is a oxygen uh, saturation level in their blood, which is a very cheap detector. And then, you know, to get them to the hospitals fairly early, weirdly patients don't know they're about things are about to get severe. Um, uh, it's interesting physiological reason, but I won't get into. And so Germany uh, has a quite a low case fatality rate that they've done through that type of monitoring. And so, and then, of course, once you get in facilities, we've learned that the ventilator actually, uh, although extremely well-meaning, was actually overused and used in the wrong mode uh, in those early days. So the, the health, the doctors are way smarter about treatment today. Most of that, I would say, was is global. Using this pulse box as an early indicator, that'll probably catch on broadly. But Germany was a, a pioneer there. And now, of course, dexamethasone, uh, fortunately, it's it's cheap, it's oral. We can ramp up max manufacture. That's, uh, that'll go global as well. Bill, vaccines in this day and age can be controversial. 
some people are just very skeptical of anything that they're mandated to do. There are some that even have conspiracy theories about you, the foundation, and the efforts that you're playing, and, and a general distrust of government and that what they might be trying to do. I mean, I listen to um, uh, news programs um, on both sides of the ideological aisle to try to get um, information from both and to try to compare and contrast. Um, I listen to Laura, Laura Ingrams, and, um, you know, she's put out some conspiracy theories that uh, don't make a lot of sense to me. Um, but just as an example, she's um, saying some things that many people are are thinking themselves and are concerned about. So how do you deal with some of the uh, crazy ideas and conspiracy theories that are out there? How do you personally handle them and any suggestions on how in the world we get the absolute truth out instead of having these ideas that uh, may be actually hurting people in the end? I'm not sure. And, um, you know, it's a new thing uh, that, you know, there's conspiracy theories. I mean, Microsoft had a share of controversy, but at least that related to the real world. You know, to, you know did Windows crash more than it should? And, uh, you know, we definitely have antitrust problems, but at least I knew what that was. When this emerged, I have to say my instinct was to joke about it. Uh, people have said that's really inappropriate because it's a very serious thing. Uh, it is going to make people less willing to take a vaccine. Uh, and of course, once we have that vaccine, it'll be like masks where getting lots of people, uh, when particularly when it's a transmission blocking vaccine, there's this huge community benefit to widespread adoption of that vaccine. And so I am caught a little bit, uh, unsure what to say or do because the conspiracy piece is a new thing for me uh and you know what what do you say that doesn't give credence uh to the thing the fact that it, you know fox news commentator uh you know Ingram was saying this stuff about microchipping people that survey isn't that surprising because that's what they heard uh on the tv uh it's, it's wild. Um, and people are clearly seeking simpler explanations than, you know, going and studying. Thank you for that answer. Let's take another quick break, and we'll be right back for a final segment with Mr. Bill Gates and his discussions around the coronavirus. If your health insurance premium is more than your mortgage, Ellen Deal with Ideal Solutions is here to help. Whether you're a small business owner, individual family, or baby boomer, email MAGA45CAG at gmail.com, and I'll respond with three easy questions to help you determine if you can get away from Obamacare. As a 20-year veteran of the insurance industry, I'm here to help with all your insurance needs. Email Ellen Deal at MAGA45CAG at gmail.com. Want to give your family or loved one the perfect gift? Then go online and check out the TornadoBodyDryer.com. I love mine and the warm heat air massage it gives me after my shower. The Tornado Body Dryer is super. You'll love it and you'll love having one in your shower. 
Whether cruising the strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and this is the final segment this week of Healthcare Insight. We're talking to uh, Bill Gates. You all know him. He's famous for his uh, work at Microsoft, for his being one of the wealthiest people in the world. And today what we've been doing is taking segments of a presentation he made to TED Talk. And uh, we've been asking some questions and kind of making commentary along the way on some of the things that he said. So I hope this reaches a new audience uh, that maybe those of you who haven't seen TED Talk um, haven't heard uh, Mr. Gates before and some of his thoughts on the coronavirus. Uh, if you want to see the full interview with him on TED Talk, I'm sure you can go to their website and you'll see um, all the questions and answers that were provided um, uh, at the TED Talk environment. In any case, uh, we want to continue and wrap up this final session this week. And I want to ask uh, Mr. Gates, do you have any recommendations for protecting ourselves during this recent uptick in the coronavirus um, exposures and cases, hospitalizations, and even the continuing level of deaths. Any recommendations? Well, it's great if you have a job that you can stay at your house and uh, you know do it through uh, digital meetings uh, and you know even some of your social activities. You know, I do video calls with lots of friends. Uh, you know, I have friends in Europe that who knows when I'll see them, but uh, we schedule regular calls to talk. It's, you know, just if you stay fairly isolated, you uh, don't run much risk. And uh, it's when you're getting together with lots of other people, uh, either to work or socialization, that that drives that risk. And particularly in these communities where you have increased cases, uh, even though it's not going to be mandated, hopefully the mobility numbers will show people responding and minimizing uh, those kind of uh, out-of-the-house contacts. Bill, you and Melinda have been leading as terms of personal philanthropy and encouraging other billionaires to give away their assets to good causes. Uh, you try to accumulate a lot of that uh, from other people who don't maybe know quite where to put their money and they trust you so much. But your personal wealth, even though you've been giving away billions, your personal wealth has even doubled since you decided to donate so much uh, to other causes. Maybe that goes back to the old... Um, Biblical concern about um, tithing. The more you give, the more you receive back. So if you're doing something right, maybe the Lord has been blessing you. And certainly your investments in Microsoft and technology companies has allowed your assets to increase, even though you've been giving away so much. So I guess the question might be, with all that coming back to you as you continue to give, is it hard to give away that much and make sure that it's meaningful? Is it hard for you to do that when your assets are growing to such a great degree uh, and you're getting back 
so that you can do even more. Uh, tell us about the problems of giving away so much money and having such great investments that they continue to grow, even though you've been giving away enormous amounts of money. And I don't think most people really fully understand or appreciate uh, the level of your philanthropy and the potential impact you can have on lives around the world as you continue to fund appropriate causes through the foundation. There's four or five other groups that are getting philanthropists together. That is fantastic because then they learn from each other, they get confidence from each other, they feel like, hey, I put in X and the four other people put money in, so I'm you know, getting uh, more impact. And hopefully it can be made fun for them. Uh, you know, even when they find out, okay, that particular gift didn't work out that well, but, uh, you know, let's keep going. So philanthropy, yes, uh, I would like to see the rate go up. And people who do get going, it is fun. It's fulfilling. Uh, you, you pick which of the family members are you know, partnered in doing it. In my case, Melinda and I love doing this stuff together, learning together. Some families, it'll be even uh, involve the kids in, in the activities. Sometimes the kids are pushing. When you have lots of money, you're, you, you, you still think a million dollars is a lot of money. But if you have billions, you know, you should be giving hundreds of millions. And so it does, it's kind of charming that in terms of your personal expenditure, you stay at the level you were at before. That's, you know, societally quite appropriate. But on your giving, you need to, to scale up or else it'll be, uh, your will uh, that, uh, and you won't get to shape it and enjoy it quite that same way. And so without, we don't want to mandate it, but yes, uh, both you and I want to inspire philanthropists to see that passion, to see those opportunities significantly faster uh, than in the past, because whether it's race or disease or uh, all the other social ills, the innovation of what philanthropy can go to and do quickly, that if it works, government can come in behind and scale it up. God knows we need solutions. We need that kind of hope and progress uh, that, uh, you know, expectations are high that will we'll solve very tough problems. Bill, can you give our listeners uh, a little bit of insight into your plans uh, going forward to increase your giving and maybe some idea of some locations where you might uh, consider uh, increasing that giving. Yeah, there are people like Chuck Feeney who uh, set a uh, good example and gave away all of his money. Uh, you know, even you know Melinda and I are talking about should we up the rate that we give at? As you say, we've been very lucky on the investment side. Uh, you know, through a variety of things. Tech fortunes in general have done well, uh, even this year, you know, which is one of those great contrasts uh, in, in what's going on in the world. And I do think there's an expectation that we should speed up and there's a reason to speed up. Uh, and, you know, government is going to miss a lot of needs. Yes, there's, there's tons of government money out there. But helping it be spent well, helping find places it's not uh, stepping up. And, 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 you know, if people are willing to give to the developing world, they don't have governments that can, you know, print checks for 15% of GDP 
Uh, and so the, you know, the suffering there broadly, just the economic stuff alone put aside the pandemic, uh, is, is tragic. It's about a five year setback in terms of these countries moving forward. Well, Mr. Gates, we really appreciate your time, your input, your energy, your philanthropy, your working towards this national crisis that we're in with all your influence and all the potential of your foundation, you have made a, a big impact. I'm sure you will continue to make an impact. And I hope uh, that as you look at the landscape out there, that you remain hopeful that we'll find a solution and that we'll get through this together. Thank you for being on the program. Well, thanks. It's fun work and I'm optimistic. Now let's take these last few minutes of this last segment of the radio program today and let's talk about the most controversial issue in medicine that was alluded to by Mr. Gates. And that's hydroxychloroquine. We have heard about it from the president. We've heard about it from the media. We've heard about it from a number of experts. And we've heard about it from doctors. So what's the real answer here? Is hydroxychloroquine a potential cure? Is it a help? Is it a preventive? Is it something you do at the beginning of a potential episode of COVID? Or is it something you use when you are most desperate? Let's talk to some other people as we wrap up this week's session and hear what others are saying about it. Because it's gotten so controversial that a physician group that was having a conference in Washington, D.C., held a press conference, and that press conference that was supporting the idea of doctors using hydroxychloroquine appropriately with their own decision-making with their patients was taken off of Twitter and Facebook and all the social media sites. So there must be something else going on here for a drug that's been used for 65 years that I myself have used when I went to Africa and they wanted to be uh, a prophylactic so I didn't get malaria. There's got to be something going on here. Let's talk to some other folks before we wrap up this program and find out what's going on. Dr. Gold, you're in a certified emergency room specialist. You've treated patients with hydroxychloroquine. You organized the event in Washington to study it. You spent over six hours with others talking about how to deliver it, when to deliver it. What's going on here from your perspective? You know, we come with a message of hope for the American people. The American people have been told that this is just something they need to have a lot of fear and a lot of panic over, and it's simply not true. There's a cure, there's treatment for early COVID disease, and that's hydroxychloroquine and zinc. It's very straightforward. It's easy. When you look at data from other countries, it's easy. We just don't have that kind of access here. And if anybody has any doubt that this is the answer, all they have to do is notice that YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook deleted all information about this. You know, we did do a press conference, but we also had six hours of education from physicians explaining exactly why the drug works and going over all the safety and efficacy. They even took down our website. It's incredible. So, I mean, somebody's really afraid of getting the truth out, but I'm here to tell the American people, hydroxychloroquine and zinc, we're going to get the information back up soon. America's frontline doctor. But here's what Dr. Fauci said about hydroxychloroquine. And I go along with the, with the FDA. The overwhelming prevailing clinical trials that 
have looked at the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine have indicated that it is not effective in coronavirus disease. Dr. Fauci has referenced a number of studies that have been done and that the gold standard of research is the double-blind study, and that has not been done or results come back positive for coronavirus. Is that what he's talking about? Well, what he's talking about is uh, uh, probably the most recent study out of Brazil that was referenced that came out last week in neutral medicine. What it showed was when hydroxychloroquine was given late, uh, they couldn't tell whether it worked or not, and that's in a study author's own words. The reality is, when given early in mild to moderate disease, hydroxychloroquine works terrifically well, and as we've seen, cuts mortality rates by 50%. And that there are numerous clinical trials uh, that show uh, that hydroxychloroquine works, and I think what she's afraid of is that this gets discovered by the American people. We never talk about the European data. We never talk about the mortality rates in countries that went to hydroxychloroquine early and aggressively. Dr. Gold, you've taken a lot of heat over your press conference and your belief in hydroxychloroquine. What would you like to have happen next? I'm a practice, a board-certified practicing emergency physician. That's fine. We can take it. All of us can take it. But what we need to do is we requested the FDA look at the emergency use authorization that's on their desk. We'd really like them just to allow us to use hydroxychloroquine, as we always were able to prior to COVID, and especially let us use it on label now for COVID so that the state can stop us, can stop restricting our use of it. We really just want to heal patients and heal America. Well, thanks to everybody for the informative discussion on hydroxychloroquine to wrap up this uh, week's program. Appreciate all the um, information that everybody's passed along. What I do know from dealing in Washington that just because you haven't completed a research study doesn't mean something isn't true and that it doesn't work. If a patient is in need and the doctor thinks it'll work and the medication has been around for 65 years with very few, if any, side effects, I've taken it myself, so let the doctor and the patient make that decision. That would be my only conclusion from listening to this, but you make your own conclusion as listeners out there, and come back and join us next week on America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman signing off for Healthcare Insight. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.